Welcome to episode two of The Bridge. I'm your host, Chris Morga, and today we're going to uncover the power of story in your career. Our guest today is Rena Friedman Watts. She's the host of the Better Call Daddy podcast and just a fantastic human being. And I think you're going to love her story. She started out by dreaming of a Hollywood career and became the producer of the Jerry Springer show and gone on to do so many different things to where it's brought her to new heights. And now she's a podcaster that loves what she does. She gets to talk to people on a daily basis. She gets to learn interesting stories through other people's career paths and journeys. And I think you're going to love this episode because Rena uncovers her entire life in going into Hollywood. Thanks for hanging out with me. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And let's get into it with Rena Friedman Watts. I got to ask you, Rena, have you ever seen Game of Thrones? My dad's a big fan of that, but I have not gotten into that. You haven't seen it. Okay, so the joke would probably be lost on you. But the when I was reading your background and I was reading everything that you have done, I felt like one of the characters in Game of Thrones, every time she grew in stature and she visited a new city, they tagged on a new tag onto her name. So by the end of the show, when they announced her, people would just be like, because it was like, you know, the, the breaker of chains, the mother of dragons, the, and it just kept getting longer and longer. And as I'm reading your background, I'm going, she's done everything on the planet. So, I mean, you really need no introduction, but just to get back into some of the most notable moments that I've seen on there, you know, I saw about the, the Jerry Springer show and, and, oh my goodness, I was court TV. I was like, yes, nanny nine one one. I mean, you've done so much with NPR I can't even give you enough credit for what you've done, but it's it's so highly respectable. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I love that intro. And it's funny because no matter what we accomplish, we're always wanting more. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's good in some ways, but it's also a major curse because you're constantly grinding and grinding and grinding. And sometimes we can forget what's most important, the family life, the interactions, the friendships, the relationships that we grow with. But on the other side, it helps you to reach new heights that you never thought were possible. So you're always going for something. So that could be a, both a curse and a blessing at the same time. All right, well, let's get into 100%. it. I mean, I, there's and I'll tell so you, much. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, I've interviewed some extremely successful people as far as like, I mean, how do you even define success, right? People mm -hmm. that are celebrities, people that have multi-million dollar homes, people that have traveled the world. But what does it come down to? A very small group of people. Who is your inner circle? Who are you giving your time to? And when you're giving your time to people, are you being present with them? That's so true. I mean, the definition of success is so skewed, right? Because it's different for every single person. I mean, some people will mark money as, as success. Some people will take status as success. Some people, you know, even myself included, the fact that I have a wonderful supporting wife and two beautiful, healthy children, that's success for me. Good enough. I've made my mark and I've got a legacy to leave behind. And that for me is more than any riches in the world. And the more interviews that I've done most recently, I am, yeah, I am finding that too. 
Yeah. Some of the people that I look up to the most are really satisfied and feel the most fulfilled from what you just said. And I admire that you consider that a success and that that is legacy for you. I get that. For me, I don't know what it is, but I always, in the back of my mind still, it's funny, I thought I knocked Hollywood out of my system. Like I thought I had gotten my name in enough credits of shows and I had worked on enough productions and I was like, okay, check that box, ready to get married, ready to have kids. I took a break from it. But even as my kids started to enter into like preschool, I was like, okay, I can nurse my kid in the car, drop them off at a at a babysitter for four hours, go to a courthouse, find some stories, send it back to Hollywood, keep that introduction going, keep that contact in Hollywood fresh. And I did that for four years. I worked on divorce court and hot bench and Judge Alex for like four or five years. I was literally nursing my kids in the car, dropping them off at a babysitter for four hours and picking them up, nursing them in the car on the way home (laughs) and doing both because I wanted to still be in Hollywood. I wanted to still be important. I, I wanted to still be creative. I wanted to still keep my foot in the door. That says a lot. I mean, that's next level in itself. I mean, it really is. I mean, some people would love to bottle up that energy level, but I have, I have a question for you that, you know, is very timely from a conversation we were having in the house. Are you more of a fan of old Hollywood or the newer Hollywood? That's interesting. So I will say that, you know, I got my roots at the Jerry Springer show, which for me was like the forefront of reality TV. It was talk shows really led to to reality TV, I think. And so I started my career in reality TV. I went from working at a talk show, which was like people getting their 15 minutes of fame, to, you know, the real world, road rules, EVH1, carpool karaoke's, nanny 911's. And that hasn't gone away. It's been magnified. Now, however, if you start your own platform, you grow your own audience, you get your own gear, you can have your own show. The the playing field has been leveled. So I will say, you know, I recently have been contacted by producers because of my time on Springer. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why should I give up my contacts to you when I can do this? Wow, that's powerful. What you just said was powerful because maybe it's my age, but <laughs> when I think about you know Hollywood and the movies that we see today, and there's a lot of CGI and there's there's a lot of talent out there. Don't get me wrong, but there was a certain presentation of what old Hollywood meant to me. And when I say old Hollywood, I'm not talking you know I'm talking probably around you know the the earlier 70s into the 80s when. It was still at the tail end of what movies were in the 50s and how they had to do everything, but they didn't have necessarily computer graphics to in the in the 80s. Like, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead and uh, the lost oh, boys. Oh, I grew up on that. Yeah. Right? Wasn't that great? <laughs> but like there was, there was that shift and you started to see the old Hollywood not necessarily going away, but it was morphing into something that was much more artistic from a computer generation point. And the argument that we were having in the house was, I'm not exactly sure whether I like it or I don't like it, but I also appreciate where it came from and how it integrates into what new Hollywood is. 
Okay, well, I just watched the Amber versus Johnny Heard trial. Guilty, me too. <laughs> binged it, yeah. I want to hear what you thought of that. I know the producer of that. And I will say that I thought it was a mix. I think that there's story there. There's good storytelling there. There's actual footage there. And there is AI elements. And I thought that that was interesting and creative. I like the possibilities of AI. I use AI now in my business. Excellent. It's powerful. It really is. I mean, it, November 22nd came around, and I think everybody in the audience knows ChatGPT was launched on November 22nd, and I jumped in headfirst. I'm a huge tech guy. You know, I just love playing with things until they break and then reverse engineering. So when I jumped on the chat GPT, and I think that was three or two at the time, I was so excited of what this could do. And then I heard uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. He was talking to somebody in an audience, and they were saying, AI is going to kill jobs and, and it's going to kill um, you know, careers. And his point was so poignant, and I loved it. He goes, so did the tractor. And I went, wow, that was powerful because you think of how much farming was in this country to start with. And then the tractor changed the game. It didn't necessarily, well, it did kind of replace a lot of jobs, but it also forced people to upskill themselves. And that's what we have to do as career professionals, whether we're you know, doing what you do on a daily basis and taking it on your own and building your own brand to new heights, or the people that are sitting in corporate, you know, just corporate sitting at customer service desks, the, the AI component can change the game for them. And it's just going to force them to upskill and it's going to be able to help their careers overall. So I agree with you. I'm so excited for what AI is going to bring. I also think about the fact that my dad worked in a factory for 40 plus years, and now the machines that they were running manually can be automated by robots and they can take more work and use less people to supervise the work. Yeah. So is it replacing people? It might be replacing some people who are doing the manual work, but if they can upgrade their skills and learn how to supervise and QA the robots, yeah. you still need somebody to do that. And you still see, need somebody to do the customer service. You still need somebody to be knowledgeable about the product. I'm for it. That's perfect because I didn't think of the health component too. And, and people like your father, that was backbreaking work, yes. you know, and you can take that away and keep people healthier and you can keep the, the life expectancy longer. So yes. that's a positive. Yes. Yeah. That's great. I love that. Well, as you know, I mean, this, this show is really designed around careers and it's designed to help people gain inspiration and make that decision. You know, for so many years, I was helping people build their own businesses, but I was also helping them to land the jobs that they want. And then beyond that 90 days, be able to take what they've learned in that onboarding or probationary period and really build a career path out of that by finding the end game and reverse engineering it and building a plan around that. But I wanted to kind of dive in with you because you know, I always look at a resume and people think I'm nuts for this, but I always look at a resume and a LinkedIn profile. I go all the way to the bottom. You know, I don't even look at what's your most current job. I want to see, cause I visualize, okay, she got out of high school. Maybe she went with her best friend to college. They roomed together. 
What was the thought process there? What were the dreams that they had that we're going to do this in life? We're going to do it together. And I always visualize that way. And it helps me to understand the progression of people to where they are now. And I think that's so important to be start at the beginning for people. So, you know, in the state of that, could you kind of walk me through how you started and tell people exactly what that process for your career looked like and how you decided not to go to corporate America and take it your way? Yeah, that's a great way to look at things and very interesting. And I was thinking about that as you were describing it. So I went to a youth performing arts high school. I used to love to sing as a kid. I would line up my grandparents on the couch, my parents. I would put on these little performances. A lot of it was lip singing. But my grandpa always took his hat off to me. I had a big fan club. And I thought I was, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then I, I went in and kind of auditioned in the same way for this youth performing arts school. And then I didn't get in. <laughs> so it was a little bit of soul crushing right from the get go. And my dad went to the head of the music department and was like, what does she have to do to get in? <laughs> like, we're not taking no for an answer. <laughs> and nice. so I don't think many people actually had done that, to be honest. It is a, it was a very renowned program, one of the top schools in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And I don't know if that music teacher just thought my dad had some charisma or what, but he said, here's the music teacher that we work with outside of here. Get her some voice lessons, <laughs> teach her how to read music. She has to sing in a foreign language, an art song. There were like real bars that you had to hit. <laughs> and so I did that over the summer and swallowed my pride and walked back in there and re-auditioned and got in. But the thing is, is that I never really felt like I was accepted because I had gotten that first rejection. And so for four years, four freaking years, I stuck out that program because my dad went to bat for me and I wasn't going to embarrass him. And I really did want to go there, but I didn't feel like I had the talent to be there. Like the people around me knew how to play piano. They knew how to sight read music. They had gotten in on their first try. It took something out of me. But I stuck it out for four years and everyone around me was amazing. I went to school with Nicole Scherzinger and people that made it to Broadway and very talented people. And if you do that and you don't quit, and you, I kept up the singing lessons, by the way, for four freaking years. The teacher that was recommended is like my mentor. And the last week of your senior year, you audition for schools and try to get a singing scholarship. And Nicole Scherzinger took me into the music closet and she's like, Rena, I've been seeing you these four years. You never sing out. <laughs> you just blend in. Like, this is your shot right now. Go out there. I'm going to sit in the front row. Look at me. Don't look at them and give it, give it a go. And so I did. And Soprano or alto? I was like a mezzo. Mezzo? But I sang in the alto section. Cool that nice. you know that. <laughs> I'm a theater geek myself. <laughs> yes. I found my people, by the way. Like, I love creatives. I love mm -hmm. musical theater, all that. Yeah, I was one of those kids. And so I got a couple offers to two small schools. And I went, to, to be honest, where I was wanted more. Because after four years of not feeling nice. wanted, I was like, oh, that one wants me? I'm going there. And so I went <laughs> to... It. Uh, <laughs> it's nice to be wanted, right? <laughs> Um, but I went to the University of Charleston and it was great. It wasn't as challenging as my high school program, to be honest. I, and I partied. I 
I got a 4-0 my first semester, and I think half the semester I was drunk. So I decided that I needed more of a challenge, and I was hanging out with the wrong people. And I also was like a double major in sports medicine because I wanted to meet boys, truthfully. And so I I had met a personal trainer that was in um, a program at Purdue University. That's a whole nother story. Basically, I met him in an amusement park, thought he was hot, and ended up pretty much transferring to Purdue because of that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, this is this is being young and dumb, right? But it did get me into a better school. So I had good grades from going to the school that wasn't as challenging. I got into Purdue. What was great about Purdue is that they had a radio station on campus. And so I walked in there and I said, I want to work in radio. And they had a shift. Somebody there was leaving is. the station. They had a shift that was like 5 a.m., like the shift nobody wants. And I was like, great, I- I'm in for it. Yeah. And so I started working the 5 a.m. shift and weekends and I was loading the features and and this was pre-automation I was like running the board learning how to work the mechanics of the station and while nobody was at the station I was singing in the booth and recording myself and making air check tapes and I found a love there and so I thought I wanted to work in radio I sent some air check tapes off, but it's not like you can send one or two tapes off and then land a job at a major network. You know, it's not so easy, but I did through the alumni office, get an interview at WGN. So I drove from Purdue to Chicago. I interviewed at WGN, which was, yeah, like legendary and didn't get the job, but I was like used to rejection, (laughs) you know, knew how to (laughs) dust myself off. And on that, and you can always go back to the hot guy. (laughs) I'll just go back to the hot guy. No, that actually didn't work out very long at all. Um, Yeah. Um, It's funny because he like wanted to get back in touch on Facebook. I'm like, no, never. (laughs) What, recently? Yeah, like a couple years ago. Isn't that weird? You totally had your chance. Weirdo. Yeah, (laughs) not to get off topic, but that's happened to me too. That's so weird. You're like, 30 years has gone by. What? (laughs) Yeah. Are you still living there, by the way? Yeah, no. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, went to Chicago, didn't get the gig at WGN, but saw Jerry Springer was looking for interns in the same courtyard. Literally at WGN in that courtyard, there was like a flyer board. And so I called the number on the flyer, got through security, charmed them and started two weeks later. But I I just I feel like had I not experienced that rejection before, I literally would have probably just gone home. But I saw that opportunity. I was like, hey. And then I went for it. And I ended up starting there two weeks later. So I went from intern to producer in one season. So I went from babysitting the guests to getting guests on the phone to pitching stories to actually getting to make it all unfold on stage. It was the best time of my life. I was in my early 20s. I was hot. I was getting to travel to Jamaica. I was getting to hang out with wild and crazy people, and it was a lifestyle. I would imagine so. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's got to be a, a rewarding time, you know. And it, as you're saying that, and, and drawing back to my 20s and my early 30s, and where I was, yeah, you know, I wanted to be an actor. I was, you know, that whole thing. I wanted to go to New York, and I was an extra in a couple TV shows and movies, and just hanging around in the. Uh, I forget what they called it. Um, when you're just hanging around, but anyway, it's like 13 hours, you're just hanging around waiting for your seat. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. But 
then I got a job in New York City and I was like, this is so cool. And I loved every second of it because of being able to meet people. And I used to hang out in the China club, you know, with my cousin, cause he lived upstairs and you know, Kathleen Turner one night was on a table dancing and she was looking around and, and I lit her cigarette and then, you know, like Eddie Murphy was having dinner and Danny DeVito. That's why I always use the joke. Cause I'm short like him. And I say, I'm Danny DeVito stunt double <laughs> being the short guy, but it changes the game when you have opportunities like that and you just get to see a different side than you would have ever expected. There's something that hooks into you. And whether you go from that point into corporate or wherever you go, there's something that that draws you to, oh, I want that type of life or I want that notoriety. And you start to look for it. And that was my career, too, and being a project manager in New York. Boring, but there was all the other side of that taste of seeing those type of things and seeing those lives that I wanted to be around it in whatever ca capacity that I could. So I totally get that. And especially, but what was wrong with like Maury Povich and, and Geraldo? You didn't want those shows? <laughs> I mean, I probably would have. I actually tried to get into Oprah after Jerry. Did you? I tried, I, I was next door neighbors with Oprah's attorney. I oh, tried that's to slip cool. my resume under her door, but I was told that. <laughs> She didn't hire Springer producers, which later I found out wasn't true. What's interesting, though, is huh. I moved to L.A. after that, and I heard that line more than once. We don't hire Springer people. I, I interviewed, I think, at Paramount for a show, Judge Judy, I want to say, and was told, and there was somebody that had worked on Springer before me there, and he said, we don't hire Springer people. I was like, how is Judge Judy any more rewarding than Springer? I'm like, how are you judging? That's a powerful statement, actually, because <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I, I was told actually multiple times by people that I have even worked for, maybe you should take it off your resume or frame it as you worked for NBC or you worked for Universal. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, early in your career, you do things like that. You yeah. listen to people and how they tell you to frame things and you try to be something that you're not. But the people that I have worked for that think it's cool that I worked for and they they lead with that, those are my people. The people that yeah. ask you to change aspects of yourself. And this is what you learn from entrepreneurship when you don't have to take shit from anyone. Seriously. You don't have to change where you've worked. You don't have to state it differently. The more you lean into who you are and the more honest you get with yourself, then you're going to find the better people to collaborate with. I need an applause button. I got to find an applause button because that was fantastic because we all do that and change things. And you know, the more yourself, the more you're in command and, and it stops people from taking advantage of you too. When you push back yes. at an early stage and you say, well, that just doesn't align, but using the buzzwords that is out now that doesn't align with what I believe. Don't However, operate in fear, man. Exactly. Do not freaking operate in fear. I've done it. I hate when I get there. And even I got asked to keynote an event right before I got COVID over uh, last summer. And it was the biggest event I've gotten asked to speak at. And I got nervous and I, you know, met with, you know, professional speakers. I reached out to people that had been on my show who I was impressed with the presentations that they've given. I did Toastmasters. I practiced a zillion times. I mean, yes, this is part of preparation, right? Yeah, but yeah. when it comes down to it, nobody can write your speech. Nobody can tell your story. Nobody can rewrite your intro. The best way to tell your story is the way that you would tell it. Exactly right.
Exactly right. And I mean, for the kids that are listening or, you know, the younger generations, that's the most powerful advice that you could possibly get is be authentically you. And I think the younger generations are much more self-aware than we were growing up because we had that, the power of parental guilt. <laughs> so, you know, we always wanted to chase and we always wanted to, to be something. So we would listen to other people blindly a lot of times. But the one thing I've noticed that the younger generations is they're much more adept to say no and to kind of do it their own way. It could be beneficial. It could wind up biting them in the butt. But I think it's something that's very good and very needed. You know, so I they're not taking advantage of it. came from the era of prove yourself. Yeah. Pay your dues. Yep. Yep. Do what you're told. And I'm seeing it with my kids that they're like, don't reverse psychology me. Yeah. <laughs> it's the leftovers of the 50s, 60s, and 70s when the, the American dream was you go to work 25 years, you get a white picket fence, you get a house, a couple cars, and you know you collect your gold watch and go play golf somewhere. And that was it. And our generation was the generation that said, no, that's not it for me. You know, and it's and not satisfying it. enough. It's no, not impactful it's really not. enough. It's not fulfilling enough. And the model's broken. You yeah. can go to Harvard. You can go to an Ivy League school. You can check all the damn boxes and still be empty. You can work for Jerry Springer. You can have your name in the credits. You can live in Hollywood. I've lived in L.A., Burbank, San Francisco, Chicago, stood on my own two feet and still in search of more. Yep. And I'll tell you, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my life. But Kelly and I came up where we had apartments, we had little apartments and we struggled and we could barely make ends meet. And then we wound up being homeless. But I always wanted what my uncles had. And they had this big, beautiful house and they, they looked like they had their shit together. You know, and I said, I want that. Well, you know, we clawed back and Kelly and I fought. We were eating, we were eating bow tie pasta with brown gravy and packets for weeks because no money. We clawed back. And now we're in this 4,000 square foot monster of a house on a golf course. I don't feel any different. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my life and I love where we are for my children, but that doesn't define me is because I have a, a larger home. You know, when we think about the, the best times of our lives, even with my 14 year old, we think about that apartment, that little two bedroom apartment. We all had to sh share the room together. It was the simplistic times. And it was the times that were really enjoyable because there wasn't as much pressure on you. And I think that's the most powerful message is no matter how much you want, you're always going to want more, but be careful when you do get it. Because sometimes the times of the struggle and the times that you're living in now are going to be the best times of your life. And you're going to look back on that and remember that. And the most impactful for your family. I think what really put things into perspective for me is that, you know, my grandparents ran a manufacturing company for 40 plus years, and now my grandmother is almost 95 years old. And you know what it boils down to at the end of the day? Somebody holding her hand, somebody bringing her the butternut soup that she wants at mm -hmm. 10 p.m., somebody yep. helping her to the bathroom, her favorite soft blanket and slippers. Nobody ever st spent time on their deathbed and said, I wish I would have filed that one more report. Nobody, you know, and that's, that's something that we all need to kind of share with the, the younger generations as well. And even to remind ourselves, the people that are in their mid forties and, and things like that is just to remind them that regardless of what you're going through, what you have right now 
is the most important things that you'll have in your entire life. Yeah. And those are the things you're going to, you're going to want and you're going to reach for. Boy, that took a dark turn, didn't it? <laughs> well, another thing that my grandma taught me and that I've been thinking about as a mother is love. She loved differently. And I'm talking about every time she sees me, she's like, how long are you going to be here for? You know, come hold my hand. And if we can take the love that we have gotten that has made an impression on us and give that to the most important people in our life, that is what I'm aiming for. That's your success. That's your success. I want to be able to love like that. But in addition, or and in addition, I want still to be able to work on creative projects that yeah. feel, that feel fulfilling and meaningful and help people tell their stories in the way that they dream of telling them. That's the biggest thing is the storytelling, right? Yes. I mean, it really, really is. It, it, it's more than the just content, people posting content with no real end game on it. And it feels very vanilla. And we're, we're much smarter now because of social media and we see right through it when oh, people yeah. are trying to build something. And I applaud them for trying. There's a lot of people that won't even post. So I applaud them for trying to build something, but they have to keep in mind the story of it because that's the most impactful. And everybody loves to learn about everybody else's life and hear it through their lens. Like you said before, nobody tells a story better than you do and the way you tell it. And I think for you know the content managers of the world, the marketing professionals of the world, they understand that. And they're creating that content to be more storytelling, even when it's just photographic, you know, or just a small 10 second video, you can see the story behind that. And that's and for me personally, that's the part I love is hearing the story, watching the story or listening you know, to that story. So those I have things, a good story yeah. and it's crazy how many years in the making, I mean, I have more than one, but one that comes to mind and what you're talking about is I tried the corporate thing for a bit, corporate-ish. And, and I've gotten a couple exciting projects from doing that, right? I think it's important to try things and see if you fit. And then if you don't yeah. make adjustments. So one, my husband was working for a tech company and there was a subsidiary and they were, they created a position for me, actually, you know, they kind of found out about some of the experience that I had and they were looking for like a marketing slash program manager type of role. And they had never really done any in-house video. And I was like, how cool would it be to show all of the different diversity within this organization and how everybody from the organization, I made up all different kinds of things. One was, you know, what's your elevator pitch? How do you talk about the place that you work? And so I created a game like whose elevator pitches it anyways and I went around and I interviewed somebody who'd been there at the company for 20 years, 10 years, five years, intern. What is your elevator pitch? How do you talk about where you work? Right. And then, you know, they sent out these monthly newsletters that were so freaking boring. Nobody uh. ever responded to them. Nobody ever engaged with them. It seemed to me like a freaking waste of time. So I was like, hey, how about we send out a newsletter like this month and do whose elevator pitch is it anyway? And then if you can guess who said which elevator pitch the person that gets the most right gets like an autograph headshot of the CEO. I the love CEO that. 
totally played along. He thought that was funny. He gave me like a picture of him from when he was younger, like younger <laughs> years, looking good and buff or whatever. And he signed it, right? We're back of to course. the hot guys. <laughs> He's like, if I'm giving away a picture, it's got to be a good one. So, but it was fun and people participated and it kind of gamified it. And like, I, I think some people didn't even know there was a newsletter. I don't know. So that was one project that I organized and loved and like felt really was well received. That. I really love that. And then another one was that there was this product and they, it only had a, a couple customers and, you know, the trade shows of them trying to sell it. I just felt like, you know, they had the rat card, they had the brochure, they just so corporate and stuffy. I was like, let's make a video of like people interacting with the app. Like, so same thing, like show people from our organization and, and they let me hire a guy that they were, that was a friend of somebody that worked for the company and he was a videographer. So I think, you know, I had a small budget, but I got to hire the videographer. I got to pick the people from the office that I felt would give the best representation of interacting with it. So somebody who could explain it technically, somebody who, you know, could play with it in a fun way, a couple girls, a couple interns, whatever. I got to pick the talent. I got to write the script. I got to supervise a shoot, pack it together. Cool. And that was like one of my most favorite projects. They ended up using it at a trade show. That is so cool. I, I love the first one of whose elevator pitches it anyway. I really, really love that. I'm trying to think of how to implement that. I'm like, huh, how can we do that in a company? But you're so right. Even in my world in recruiting, marketing needs to be part of recruiting and talent acquisition. Because, you know, we see all the time, we see people posting jobs up there, now hiring for this. It's so boring. It's and you so copy-paste. Yeah. And you notice every single job posting, you see one or two likes, and it's usually the friends in the company. There's no engagement on things like that. And it's almost irrelevant to put it up there, you know? So I'm waiting for the time where talent acquisition teams have their own arm of marketing to be able to really showcase the company. And I'm thinking about the whose elevator pitches it anyway. If they were to take that, which was originally designed for an internal game, what if they were to put that out publicly? Imagine how many people would want to work at that company because they think, wow, this is so fun. Totally. They would get applications everywhere. Plus, I feel like more people would understand what the heck the role is if you hear it from different perspectives. I mean, how many times do you need somebody else to explain what the company does? Like for me, exactly. I was I was trying to learn what all of these people's roles were because I was new to the company. It was me trying to understand what we did. And what better example <laughs> of culture than that? I mean, everybody tries to put culture into words and not to downplay it, but it does sound kind of boring. It could, you know, it doesn't sound exciting. Like, wow, they have the greatest culture ever. But seeing a video like that of just a bunch of your executives getting in on this game and talking about their, their elevator pitch, that's a company that I will do everything under the sun to get into that company. Because that sounds exciting. It sounds like they play with new ideas. They're not afraid to push the envelope. And they're going to have a lot of fun doing it. Sometimes we take ourselves so seriously when, you know, even in the beginning of companies, it was supposed to be fun, right? I mean, when people started companies, Steve Jobs and Apple, they were all having a blast in his garage. They're, they're listening to music and they were, they were probably smoking pot, but, you know, it's irrelevant. They were having a great time to start this company. And then somewhere, maybe shareholders, maybe whatever it might be, somewhere it falls off the rails. But that's a great program. I hope there's somebody listening right now that you know, just says, we have to implement that. It's my company and make sure that Rena gets rights, by the way, 
<laughs> Thank you. And, but and from that's there, fantastic. I, uh, I went on to a financial firm because I feel like marketing really applies to any company. And yeah. this one was closer to home. So I didn't have to take the train to and from work and didn't have to struggle as much to meet my kids. You know, I went through multiple nannies trying to work downtown and get back in time to get them and it didn't really work. So I looked for something closer to home and then I was like, oh, wow, well, this person's looking for a director of marketing. It's closer to home around the same dollar amount. Let's do it. And it took me, I would say, six to seven months to kind of learn even what I'm selling. I just kept to the script yeah. and didn't really push the envelope. But once I got my bearings and knew how my phone was ringing or how did I started getting people into the room, <laughs> then I started getting creative, which is fun. It does take yeah. around there. And... So we started putting together like these lunch and learn events and I started taking pictures just of the speaker, the venue, the marketing materials and showing people that we were putting on these events. Then from doing that and literally sharing it on LinkedIn, people in other cities started reaching out to me and they're like, hey, we'd love to co-sponsor one of these with you. I'm like, awesome. So then we started doing them in Atlanta and California and different areas, multiple ones in Chicago. Wasn't that and the LinkedIn local? It wasn't a LinkedIn local. It was actually for financial advisors. It was it was for financial advisors, CPAs, state attorneys. I, I was working in the financial scene there for a little bit. Cool. And, you know, we brought the lender. The lender did a talk. We talked to them about an insurance product. I wasn't crazy about the content. I was more crazy about marketing it. I can market anything, right? How yeah. can I market this? Once I really like they make money sexy. <laughs> yeah. It is like once I really figured out what I was marketing, I wasn't really crazy about. That's what led to entrepreneurship. Because once I yeah. started putting on these events and realizing, wow, I can market anything and my phone is the one that's ringing and I'm making my boss a lot more money than he's paying me. Like I'm making him a million and he's paying me 50K. Hmm. I should get licensed. Right. <laughs> So I did. I went and got life insurance licensed. And one of the guys I had put on an event with was like, I want to do this with you. I'm going to make you a partner of my firm. I ended up getting burned. And then I was like, I want to do my own thing. I've, I've developed all of these skills. I know how to put on events. I know how to book sponsors. I know how to do the marketing materials. I've got a social media following now from documenting all of this. But it's just crazy. So even me starting a podcast, you know, it's like continuing to build your own brand. So I will say, I think that I was becoming an entrepreneur at the financial firm. I think it started there where I was like making, I was building my presence. I was building my brand. I was getting messy. I was creating these events. That's where I really was like itching to leave working for someone else. Because like I said, I made my boss a lot of money. So much so that he sent me to Tony Robbins on him at the end of working for him. Yeah. For a week paid for. It was a very nice thank you, but it still did not equate to how much I had, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> made that guy. That was yeah. like a drop in the bucket. It was a great experience. I still keep in touch from, from that experience with a lot of people, but that place made me realize that I should be doing something on my own. My phone, I can make my phone ring. Of all the people that I talk to, that seems to be the common denominator, arithmetic. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously, everybody that I've talked to that has gone on their own, um, one of the guests you'll see, Carl Pauline, you know, everybody says that once I put two and two together and realize <laughs> what, what my hard work was making this person and I was getting a small piece of that. Yeah. That's when it switched off. And if they had that fire and if they had that confidence, they were like, I'm going to do it on my own. So there's a big common denominator that I hear from people that just decide to go and do it on their own and they're crushing it. And Plus then, it's know, like I had held three jobs in a row that paid me around that number. I was like, well, I'm obviously yeah. can get this number. You know what I mean? Let's see if yeah. I can exceed that. Or let's see if I can make that same number in half the amount of time working for myself, which was what I was able to do. Wow. I can make that in a quarter of the amount of time, mm -hmm. have more balance and create a personal brand. Hmm. That seems healthier. Part, yeah. And the sad part is there's a lot of people that also realize that, but they're stuck, you know, or they feel that they're stuck or they're afraid to have it fail. I failed a million times on starting. I mean, my first company was Dynamic Solutions, some stupid thing. Yeah. But I've opened them, I've closed them. I've opened them, I've closed them. I love that failure because it, it I, I don't know. I feel like I do better when I'm backed up against a wall. If I just have your regular humdrum type of thing, I'm not, I, I don't have a fire under me. But if you throw me up against the wall and say there's no way out, that's when I become alive. And I think that a lot of people are afraid of that feeling because they feel like, number one, there might be too many things at stake, family, kids, mortgage, whatever the case may be. Or maybe it's fear of themselves. Maybe they don't have it in them, which I think that anybody can be taught to do the routine of what needs to be done to make your own business. But I don't think anybody can be taught to overcome the fear. It has to be something that you want to do from the inside out. Then you can have people coach you through it and be a support, um, a support person to help you through it. But overcoming that fear is the hardest thing that I've, of the people that I've talked to where people like you and me, it sounds like we thrive on that. I don't love being up against the wall, so to speak. But I can give you an example. So recently, I have reconnected with somebody from my past that I worked on an MTV show. Oh, my God. It's been like 12 years ago. And he is coming to my town because he sold a show. And I was like, wow. I basically saw his name in the credits of the Amber Heard thing. And I was like, damn, I haven't talked to that guy in a while. And I reached back out to him, which in itself, some people wouldn't do, right? Like some people wouldn't even throw out that line. But I was like, wait, I worked with that guy. That's crazy. I want to congratulate him on that. That's amazing. And let's see what he's up to. Then he told me he's literally coming to town to work on a project where I'm currently living in October. And then I was like, well, my son's a fan of that. Maybe I'll just ask him if like we could stop by and like get a picture with the guy that he's working with. That's like a little bit like fangirlish, but not it's too. <laughs> it's my son. He's a dad, right? Like maybe he'll have a heart for me. But then I was like, he knows I'm a producer. Maybe he needs an extra hand locally. So how I there worked with him 12 years ago was he was doing a show. I ended up back in Kentucky after LA because my husband got a job at GE back in my hometown. Totally insane. And then I hear that this guy who's connected to somebody that we know from California is doing a shoot in my hometown right down the street from my parents. So hell yeah, I put myself in the, in, in the mix. I was like, do you need a local production manager? I'm there. 
So I tried the same trick 12 years later. I was like, hey, you're doing a shoot here in October. Let me know if you need a hand or a local production manager. He wrote me back and said, yes. Nice. I love that. I love. Just take the shot. Just take the shot. Was I scared? Did I think it was pushy? Could I have ruined, you know, other potential collaborations? If he's not a nice guy, the worst well, you can yeah. hear is no. Yeah. And it's not gonna it's not gonna break the bank and it's not gonna make your life crumble. It's just nothing to no. lose. Yeah. It's just a no. And I love that you 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 read the credits. Because you you know, you've been tied into that world. And I love Do I, I know anybody on this? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, people do read the credits. But I guess, yeah, when you're working in that world, you wanna see all those names that you know or potentially Oh, wow. That's what they're doing now. Or Not know, only that, but I interviewed somebody who their testimony was in the documentary. Sherry Botwin has been on my podcast. So then I reached out to her. I was like, what? I just saw you on the Johnny versus Amber thing. She was like, yeah, that was public record. They could use that. And I was like, oh my God, you didn't get paid for that. So I reached out to her and then there was this other podcaster, Kale Lowry, who we did a promotional swap because she was launching a new podcast months ago. And she was featured in that. So if you're a podcaster and your material is public domain, then you can, your footage can be used. So I was like, damn, maybe I should reach back out to her and say, hey, I saw you, right? Yes. Yeah. That's crazy. I love that. Oh my God. I love just this. What is it? A half hour now? And I've got so many ideas. And that's the part I love about the creative brain is you get so many ideas or you even get that backup. Just take a shot. Just take a shot. It's not going to kill anything. Just do it. And now what, what's next? Just out of curiosity, what's next? And I'll edit this out if you don't want it. You know, no, sure. it's fine. Actually, it's funny because <laughs> yesterday I interviewed a guy, Mark Marrow. He was a professional wrestler. He was married to Sable. And he told me as a kid, he used to write his dreams on Post-it notes. And, one, and a couple of those Post-it notes actually came true. I was like, dude, did you frame that? So yesterday I'm walking around my house. I saw a freaking new pack of Post-it notes. I'm like, I'm going to start writing some dreams down, man. And he said by writing dreams down or by putting it out there, by saying it, you know, not only will other people keep you accountable, but it makes you accountable. And, and I was thinking about my damn dreams. And, I, and he was like, look, I made my dreams big ones, like unattainable ones, but some of them became attainable. And I'm thinking, you know what? I want to produce my own damn show on Netflix. I want to produce somebody else's show on Netflix. I want to continue to do my own thing in my own style and somebody to love me for who I am without having to, to be on somebody else's damn show. I want to do my own damn thing. Perfect call back to what you were saying at the beginning of the show. Uh, why am I doing this? You know, I'm doing this for everybody else. I want to do it for me. I love that. I love I'm uniquely me. I, I have a unique path. Everybody has a unique path. You mm -hmm. know, whether your, your medium is a book, whether your medium is a blog, whether your medium is a podcast, whether your medium is being an entrepreneur, find something that lights you up and go all in. Oh my God. That's so perfect. That's so perfect. And people need to do that, you know, more and just throw caution to the wind and do that. Whatever it is. I mean, I, I've got friends and family that are just corporate people, but even still you can take and throw caution to the wind and ask for that promotion or yes. walk up to the executive vice president who's sitting down and have lunch and just say, just want to introduce myself. I don't want to take too much of your time. Here's my card. One of these days, I'd love to tell you some of the ideas that I have for the company and walk away. 
why not? It's just a person. Get bold. <laughs> get yeah. bold and you know what else as an entrepreneur if i have an idea and and i'm a mama four i have no freaking time if i have an idea i just do it because yeah, otherwise execute. if i don't do it i'm gonna forget it yep execute are you execute, tapped execute. into intuition are you tapped into these ideas that you're having are you gonna let your ideas escape you are you gonna say two years from now two years from now is not freaking guaranteed if you have an idea try it well, that's marketing right a b testing yep just give it a shot and see. Yep. Try a bunch of different ways and see if it's going to work. I have a question, though. You know, you talk about production, and this is a world that I'm a little bit lost on. What is involved in producing? You know, well, there's all kinds of producers, like right? There's producers that are casting producers. There's producers that are money people. They get the money for the production. There's producers that write the script, develop it. There's producers that play many different roles. Okay. So I'm going to have to look that up on what producers actually do. Cause I see it all the time. I mean, I want, I'm in LA, everybody's a producer. I figured out <laughs> it was so funny. I'm like, you have to have producer glasses. You got to have a producer, uh, business card. No, I can mean, I be a producer since a podcast host? Is yeah, exactly. Heck yeah. Just start calling yourself one. I mean, for me, Here's another story. I, I was working for that financial firm. We were putting on these events, and there was a guy who was a financial advisor that came and attended one of my events. Then after the event, he came up to me and was like, Rena, I just got invited to this other event where, you know, these producers <laughs> help financial advisors learn how to tell their story in front of the camera. He's like, I'm kind of like a shy guy, but from what you just put together, you know, this little 50 to 75 person event with the speaker that you organized, I feel like this is something you might be into. Can I take you to it? And I was like, um, hell yeah. He totally treated me like $2,500 ticket. I go with him. I shoot like the behind the scenes of this guy, like learning how to tell his story. And then I made him like a little reel of like the behind the scenes of him taking me to this event. What were the takeaways from the events? What, you know, some shots of the speakers. And I gave it to him like as a gift, as a thank you for like taking me to this event that I loved and enjoyed and like got ideas from. Right. So then Fast forward, like a couple years later, I'm like producing this healthcare podcast in Chicago where I'm supervising a three camera shoot, the audio edit, the web team. He ends up being a guest on the show. No now, kidding. the lights, camera, everything comes on and the guy freezes, which let me tell you, being on camera takes practice. Me being able to talk to you in this way comfortably is not for everyone. People get nervous. People, when the lights, camera, action, everything comes on, aren't always the same person. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the camera guy realized it. I realized it. The host, I don't know. But I said, you know, let's stop down for a minute, turn everything off. And then I sat in the host chair and I was like, I know you. I know your story. You're an EMT. You're a dad. You're a financial advisor. Let's talk about that. Just talk to me. I was you like, take them. a couple deep breaths. Right? Just talk to me. Mm -hmm. Nothing's on. Let's practice. That to me is like what a producer does, a good producer, a caring, empathetic producer. I'm stuck. <laughs> I got nothing. <clears throat> That's fantastic. That, you know, and just to, this is kind of, I can't believe I'm saying this like on the recording. My dream, and we we're talking about the post-it notes, one <laughs> of my dreams was to always have an e-true Hollywood story. Not necessarily true Hollywood, but based off of the things that I've gone through in my life and the, the adversities, always wanted that. But now that you just told me that story and about the post-it notes, I'm going to write that down. 
And at some Heck point yeah. before it's all over, I'm going to make some type of E! True Hollywood story about all the things that I shouldn't have made out alive. <laughs> but I did. You know? That's what people want to hear. <laughs> That's what people relate to. And what's so crazy about that guy is months after that recording, he reached out to me and said, hey, I'm sponsoring this big nonprofit event, and I'm looking for somebody who can help me tell my business story as well as my personal story, and I trust you to do that. So the same camera guy that was at the shoot for the podcast and me ended up creating a video that he ended up showing in front of many big donors in Chicago, and I got to help put that together. And the fact that he trusted me and that I got to do that piece, it was so personally gratifying. And he has come, he has come such a long way. And for me to get to witness that, you know, from the first time he went and, and sponsored me to that event to how do a financial advisor tell their story to him being on a podcast to me making that video for him. And then we ended up working together, you know, me doing some freelance marketing work for him. And, and we've tried to figure out how we can keep the relationship going, but I'm happy with the experiences that I've gotten to have with that client. I Got feel me. fulfilled from that. You just solidified that you are the nurturing mother in your entire <laughs> community. Seriously, there's that air about you. There's just something that like you're safe. You're the person that, to go to when there's questions that need to be asked. And you take very, very deep care in that. And that just that story just solidified it for me. <laughs> thank you. Awesome. I always, you know, for that me, that is the, a compliment, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> the post-it for me, which is so crazy, was... Would I have been able to produce the Jerry Springer show as a mother? My old intern on the show ended up becoming Ooh. the executive producer. Many people that I worked with stayed on that show for 20 years. I went on. For me, I got burnout. I wanted to work on other content. I didn't think that that show was going to be around forever and I didn't want to go down. I kind of wanted to leave on a high note. And I did. And so one of my post-it notes was always, would I have been able to stay on for 20 years? Would I have been able to produce one more Jerry Springer show? And what's interesting is I'm now being contacted by networks that want me to talk about my time there. So I'm weighing that right now, full but circle. it has been very full circle. And the radio thing has been full circle too. I'm part-time working at cool.fm right now. They are doing a special feature for me on Sunday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern where they replay best of Better Call Daddy episodes, which is cool because I get to re-air guests, guests like that. I get further reach. I get further training. I am learning how to announce music. I'm learning how to speak in 30 to 60 second bites. I'm getting to collaborate with a team, which I kind of missed. So there's a lot of benefits there. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So I'm not even going to drive people to, to give you more business because you're already busy as anything. <laughs> well, well, I can tell you the kind perfect. of business I want. Um, <laughs> one of my clients is a healthcare client and they have a podcast and they have in-house content writers that write three or four, five questions. And I help them write the intro outro. I sit on the recording with them I supervise the recording and then I edit it and I hand it back to them ready for broadcast. I would love to do a couple more of those. So I'll put that yeah. out there, but for the select few. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, that's perfect. That's a perfect segue to let people know where they can find you and how they can get in touch with you with both business opportunities or just to connect with you because the podcast, the history, the way you are in the personality, I mean, everything just screams 
follow her to learn how to do it right. Really. I really, really mean that from the bottom of my heart. So why don't you tell people where to find you best? Thank you, Danny DeVito. You can find me at bettercalldaddy.com or Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn or Instagram. I'm going to get you back for that. <laughs> well, with that, we'll leave it, uh, we'll leave it here. Rena, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much to Danny DeVito as our special guest. <laughs> He's probably going to hear this and be like, that guy, go get me that guy. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with me today on episode two of The Bridge. Don't forget to like and subscribe and come visit us over at icsforward.com.